The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon is The Heirs of God. This is part three, Romans chapter eight, verses 12 through 17. So welcome back now to our verse-by-verse study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome. And as you well know, if you've been with us for any length of time, we have spent now um, several weeks in consideration of verses 12 through 17. These verses are just loaded with significance. There's so much there, and we don't want to just pass by it. We don't want to just give it a, a passing glance. It's good for us to spend some time on that. And, you know, we're not in a sprint anyway. Um, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so uh, we've got, by God's grace, the time to consider these things. And we want to do that. And so we've spent several weeks in consideration of this text. Uh, and it's, it's in this text that Paul now has introduced uh, to us what many consider to be the highest of all of the blessings given to the believer through the gospel, namely our status as sons in the kingdom of our God, Uh, the highest of the blessings given to us uh, in the gospel. In stark contrast to that fact, in stark contrast to that blessing, is the fact that every son of Adam is born as a seed of the serpent, or born as a son of the devil, a child of their father, the devil, born into our fallen condition, they take their place among the household of the damned, and their only inheritance, wrath in the day of wrath. And that's where you and I have come from, brothers and sisters. And the Lord has been gracious and merciful to us, transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the son of his love. When the fullness of time had come, Galatians chapter 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's a beautiful picture of adoption in Scripture, and that is just a glorious doctrine. The Lord himself paints that picture for us in Luke 15. We see there the example of the rebellious prodigal in Luke 15. Prodigal was wasting his life in the far country, gladly, would have gladly filled his stomach with the detestable slop that pigs eat. And then there is a conversion, a conversion. He comes to himself. That's a a picture, if you will, of a regeneration, right? He comes to himself. He sees his own condition. He remembers the grace of his father. And he says to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And here I am perishing with hunger. And he says, acknowledging his own guilt. I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm not worthy to be a son. He'll go back to his father and ask, make me one of your hired servants. Make me one of your servants, right? So the son hatches this plan and goes off to see his father, hoping for forgiveness, hoping for just a little tenderness. You know, make me one of your hired servants. And the father, in a picture of grace and mercy, sees his son, right? A great, the scriptures emphasize a great way off, a great way off. The father sees him. The father doesn't wait. The father doesn't make him walk another step. The father rushes in great compassion. He rushes down. He runs to meet his son and he falls upon his neck and he kisses him. He clothes him in his robe. He puts his ring on his finger 
and he blesses him. And my son, who is dead, is now alive. He shows compassion on him, embraces him, not as a servant, but as a son. It's a picture of God's tender compassion toward us as his sons, right? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Having been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, there has been conferred upon the one who has been justified through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, there has been conferred upon him this lofty and exalted status. It is the lofty and exalted status of a son in God's household. It's amazing, isn't it? Paul's concern in our text to this point has been to assure us of that fact. We can often forget, we can often doubt, but Paul's concern in the text has been to assure our hearts, to give us a confidence of that fact. And so what does Paul do? Paul graciously points us to the evidence. Here's how you know. He points us to the evidence that bears witness to the fact that we are sons. Verse 13, stated negatively, those who live according to the flesh, they're going to die, right? They're going to die. Those who walk after the course of this world, those who conduct themselves after the lust of the flesh, those who fulfill the the desires of their flesh and of their mind, they are the children of wrath. They're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. However, Here's the evidence. Those who walk according to the Spirit, brothers and sisters, those who evidence a walk according to the Spirit by putting to death the deeds of the body, mortifying the flesh with its lust, all that through the enablement of the Spirit, these will live. And why? Why are they those who live? They are those who are led by the Spirit. Verse 14, and those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that it is so. Amen? Now, there are glorious implications to that fact. If we are, if we are sons and God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts so that we as sons can cry out, Abba, Father, if we are sons, then there are beautiful and glorious implications to that reality. If we are sons, we are the children of God, verse 17. If we are the children of God, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. The Spirit himself is the pledge, the down payment, if you will, the guarantee of our inheritance. And those who are the children of God come to possess with Jesus Christ that inheritance which was bestowed upon him when he was raised from the dead. Daniel Daniel chapter 7 speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ being given a glory and dominion and a kingdom. And then it says the saints are given that in him. The glory of our own inheritance is expressed in the last clause of our text in verse 17. Namely, that we will be glorified together with him. Now, in discussing the implications of our status as adopted sons in union with Jesus Christ, Paul not only refers to our glorious inheritance, but he also refers to a sober condition. And it's the sober condition that will occupy our time together this morning. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if 
Indeed, we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified together. Now, notice something. This is a sobering condition. Notice with me, very simply, we are heirs with Christ if we suffer with Christ. It's what Paul is saying in the text. We cannot mix those words or confuse those words. We don't have room to work around those words. We are heirs with Christ if we suffer with Christ. There is a condition there, isn't there? And furthermore, we must suffer with him if we are to be glorified with him. The text is very clear, very clear. We are heirs with Christ if we suffer with Christ, and we must suffer with Christ if we are to be glorified with Christ. Now, the condition, that condition is established in verse 17 with a simple conjunction in the Greek translated, if indeed, if indeed. We are heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with Christ. And at once, what is Paul doing? At once in a text that has been preoccupied so far with the blessed status of those who've been justified through faith in Jesus Christ, now we find ourselves confronted with the sober reality of suffering associated with the Christian life. Paul presses upon us the inevitable and necessary aspect of our union with Jesus Christ and speaks to the nature of what it means to live for him. Namely, he presses upon us the reality of suffering for the Christian. Now, the use of the word there, if indeed, the use of the word leaves no room whatsoever for viewing that suffering as merely hypothetical or as merely possible. Suffering is not hypothetical in the Christian life. Suffering isn't merely potential or merely possible in the Christian life, but rather now the use of the word renders suffering in the Christian life to be an unvarnished and absolute certainty. If you are a Christian, you will suffer. If you do not suffer, then Paul says you will not inherit. If you do not suffer, we will not be glorified. With him. We are heirs with Christ if we suffer with Christ. We must suffer with him if we are to be glorified together with him. Having assured us of the glories that await us in the age to come, Paul, now having laid a foundation for the hope that is to serve as an anchor to our soul, Paul now turns his attention to the storms, to the tempests, to the trials that will most certainly be ours in this age. We will face tribulation. He'll spend the rest of Romans 8 now helping us in light of that truth, helping us to fix our gaze upon future glory while we live and labor and persevere through the suffering of our present tribulation. Paul's going to help us through the chapter, through the rest of Romans 8, to live for Christ in the light of this suffering, keeping our eyes fixed on the glories that are before us. But right now, Paul is going to deal with this issue of suffering. Brother and sister, listen now. As you will, most certainly, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've been justified through faith in him, as you will most certainly share the inheritance of the saints in the age to come, in in union with our Lord in his glory, as sure as that is, you will most certainly share in the suffering of the saints in this age in union with our Lord in his suffering. You understand? Let me say it one more time. 
as you will most certainly share in the inheritance of the saints in the age to come in union with our Lord in his glory, you will most certainly share in the suffering of the saints in this age in union with our Lord in his suffering. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy that is set before you, you must take up your cross, bear his reproach, and follow him. Despite in this day and age, and the miserable and wretched state of professing evangelicalism today, despite the counterfeits that abound, professing Christians ad nauseum that would suffer nothing for the cause of Christ, won't lift their finger for the cause of Christ, the genuine Christian, the genuine Christian life is marked, characterized, even authenticated by this fact. The Christian will suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me for an example of that to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. There are multiple, multiple examples of this in Scripture. We turn to one in the time that we have this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. As Paul writes this letter to Timothy, think with me. Timothy himself is beginning to experience now opposition or hostility in Ephesus. And as the work of ministry in Ephesus continues, hostilities are beginning to reach a boiling point. He faces enemies from within the church, professing Christians who are assaulting the church from within, and he faces enemies from without, in particular the Jews who are assaulting the people of God. But along with the Lord Jesus Christ, he has Paul as a faithful example of perseverance through suffering. And Paul turns to his own example in writing now to Timothy in verse 10. To Timothy, he says, But you, Timothy, have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord has delivered me. Lystra, it was Timothy's own hometown. Timothy was brought up in Lystra, and Timothy would have been in Lystra when Paul came through Lystra on his first missionary journey, where in Lystra, the Jews stirred up a mob against Paul and Barnabas and stoned Paul and left him outside the city for dead. Timothy would have been there during that time. And Paul responds in verse 12, yes, Timothy, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's no room to get around those words either. This is an unflinching, uncompromising, indicative statement of raw fact. Christians are going to suffer. Does that sound speculative at all to you? Yes, and most everyone or a lot of Christians are going to possibly suffer. No, (laughs) there's no room around those words. Just as desiring to live a godly life, just as desiring to live a godly life is characteristic of someone genuinely converted to Jesus Christ, in the same way, suffering persecution is simply characteristic of those who desire to live a godly life. Do you see? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All those in union with Christ will suffer. It is the inevitable and necessary consequence of living a godly life in an ungodly world around ungodly people. It is the inevitable 
and necessary consequence. If you think about that with me for a moment, there would have been a far more serious problem in Ephesus if Timothy and the saints there were not suffering persecution. There would be a far more serious problem if they weren't facing persecution. Think with me for a moment. What lies between a true Christian's desire to live a godly life on the one hand and the persecution or the hostility from the ungodly on the other? What lies between the two? What lies between them? Well, the uncompromising conduct of the one who truly desires to live a godly life. What lies between living a godly life, the Christian's desire to live a godly life on the one hand, and the persecution or hostility of this ungodly world on the other? What lies between it? The uncompromising words of the one who desires to truly live a godly life. The uncompromising witness of the one who truly desires to live a godly life. In other words, the one who desires to live godly in this present age will live a godly life that is marked by godly words, godly conduct, a godly witness, an uncompromising witness, an uncompromising conduct, uncompromising biblical words. He'll be one who preaches the gospel. He'll be one who lives a holy life. He'll be one who prioritizes righteousness. And what stands between the godly and persecution? That activity. If that activity weren't there, would there be any hostility? No. Would there be any persecution? No. But all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Why? Because of their godliness. <laughs> because of their pursuit of righteousness. The more godly, the more righteous, the more holy that you are determined to be, the more salt that will be in the wounds of this wicked world. And the more that this world will heap its scorn and derision upon you. It is a matter of fact, brothers and sisters. And there is no escaping that for the Christian. The Lord says himself in John chapter 7 that the world hates him because he testifies of the world that its works are evil. Well, what do you think the world will think of you when you bear the very same testimony? And what is a Christian to do? We are witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. We bear his name. We bear his reproach. We are witnesses to him. Peter says regarding lewdness and lust, regarding drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, the wicked think it's strange that you choose not to run with them in that same destructive flood of dissipation. And they speak evil of you, Peter says. They speak evil of you. Why do they speak evil of you? Because you don't run in the same course that they run. Do you see? But the Lord says in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, blessed are you. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kind of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, we suffer through a world characterized by unbridled, brazen immorality. And though 
a vast majority of people around us profess to be Christians here. A vast majority of those people are not Christians at all. And when professing Christians or professing churches can peacefully cohabitate in this world without persecution, without hostility, without suffering, based on Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it calls into question their profession. Why is Paul telling Timothy that to begin with? Paul is telling Timothy that because Timothy is facing persecution. And Paul says, listen, lean into it, Timothy. Lean into it. It's a reality. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Our suffering for Christ's sake is certain. The hymn writer, Isaac Watts, I like this. Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Would I be ashamed of him and his words after all that he has done for me? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Must I not do my part? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? No, it isn't. Since I must fight, Watts says, if I would reign, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil. I'll endure the pain supported by thy word. In the name, the precious name of him who died for me, through grace I'll win the promised crown, whatever my cross may be. We're going to suffer. If you're going to live godly for Christ Jesus in this day and age, in this wicked world, in our wicked surroundings, with all the, 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 the multitude of blasphemies, that take place all around us on a daily basis, you, if you desire to live godly, will suffer persecution. You will suffer. In Romans eight seventeen. in addition to our joint inheritance in the age to come, in addition to being glorified together with him in the age to come, suffering in this age is another experience of the life that we share in union with our elder brother. He has gone before us. He has gone before us in suffering, he has gone before us in glory, and we will follow him in suffering before we follow him in glory. There are many, many, many today on an easy path, many professing Christians who have no concept of what this is all about. They have no concept of what this is all about because their conduct, their words, and their witness do not stand between them and an ungodly world. Their conduct, their words, and their witness tend to go along with an ungodly word, world, or tend to it, attempt to avoid altogether an ungodly world. There are many on an easy path, many professing Christians on a path where the gate is wide and the way is broad. But that road, the Lord says, is the road to destruction. Narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way which leads to life, and few there are who find it. Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God. We are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified together. Those who inherit with Christ are those who suffer with Christ. 
and their suffering is a certainty. Okay? The ultimate basis now for that certainty, that certainty of Christian suffering, is the Christian's union with or his identification with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's our union with Jesus Christ in his person, our union with Jesus Christ in his own work that draws opposition, that draws hostility from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. Look at John 15 with me. John chapter 15. Ultimately, it's our identification with him that draws suffering John chapter 15, the Lord is in the upper room with his disciples. And in verse 18, he tells them, he's warning them of the ministry that they're going to have after he departs via the cross. And he's warning them. He wants them to know ahead of time so that when this happens to them, they know that he reminded them. They know that he's sovereign, that he warned them. They can be encouraged by that. Look at verse 18. The Lord says to them, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. In other, world, in other words, the world hates them because it hates Jesus Christ. Do you see? If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If we can skate through this life without suffering, without persecution, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, for his sake, it would give evidence to the fact that we are of the world. The world loves its own. Church at Sardis, Revelation chapter 2. The church at Sardis had a reputation with the world that it was alive. But what does the Lord Jesus Christ say of that church? It is dead. You profess to be a Christian. You have a reputation that you are alive. But unless you are living for him with a faith that is living, your faith is dead. Do you see? If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. They've responded to Jesus Christ in sin, do you see? He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now, having done those works and them having rejected him, they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. The Lord had only, had only done them good, you see. If you own his cause or dare to speak his name, this world will hate you just as it hated him. The Christian will suffer the derision of this world. The Christian will suffer the persecution at the hand, will suffer persecution at the hands of the wicked. The Christian will suffer the hostility of false brothers, false sisters from within the professing church. That righteous man or that righteous woman dwelling among them like Lot in Sodom will have his or her righteous soul tormented from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. He or she will suffer under their wickedness. The Christian's suffering is a certainty. Now, notice next with me. 
the adversity that Christians face in union with Jesus Christ is described by Paul as suffering together with him. The suffering is certain, and that suffering is described by Paul as suffering together with him. In Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Now, the word there does not refer to merely sympathizing with Christ in his suffering. Not merely looking to Jesus Christ as an example of how to endure suffering, but it refers to the actual suffering. It refers to actually suffering after the manner of his own suffering. In other words, suffering with him could be thought of as suffering similar things and suffering in similar ways. Suffering similar things and suffering those things in a similar way. It's with this language now, this word in particular, that Paul alludes to the character of our suffering, the character of Christian suffering. And he refers to it in Philippians chapter 3 as a fellowship. Right? Paul wants to know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. We're going to face the hostility of this world as he did. The servant is not above his master. So we're going to face the hostility of this world as he did, and we'll face that hostility. We are to face that hostility in the same way that he did. We are to follow his example. And it's in that way that we suffer together with him. And we have time to consider one example. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're to suffer with him the same things in the same ways. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in beginning in verse 18, we are to endure suffering as Christ endured suffering. In the context of this passage, in the context that precedes this, Peter exhorts us to honorable conduct among the Gentiles, honorable conduct, so that by doing good, we may put to silence, the eventual silence, or put to silence the ignorance of foolish men who speak evil. So this is a witness. Our suffering is to be in such a way that gives witness to this wicked world that we are suffering for the cause of Christ and it puts to silence or puts to shame wicked men. Look at verse 18. Servants, he begins, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So now think of that one who is under the harsh treatment of a severe master. Verse 19. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Now think with me. For the sake of a good conscience before God, or for the sake of a clear conscience before God, the Christian endures suffering or endures grief, suffering wrongly. He doesn't lash out against it. He doesn't respond in ungodly ways toward it. He doesn't grumble and complain about it. He doesn't argue and fight against it. He endures grief, suffering wrongly, to maintain a clear conscience before God. Do you see? Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, for your faults, you take it patiently? There's no credit. You're beaten for your faults. But when you do good and suffer, if you take this patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. (laughs) That couldn't be any clearer, could it? 
You were called to suffer in this way. You were called to endure grief, suffering wrongly, suffering injustice. Why? Because Christ also suffered for us in the same way, didn't he? Leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Christ suffered that way for us. And because the Lord Jesus Christ suffered that way for us, we are to suffer that way for him. And how is it that we're going to suffer that way for him? By being godly in an ungodly age. By living a godly life, striving after a godly life amongst ungodly people. And why would we do that? Because we've been called to that. We've been called to that. We've been called to suffer as Jesus Christ suffered. We've been called to suffer the same hostility, the same persecution that Jesus Christ suffered, and we've been called to suffer it in the manner or with the character with which he suffered it. Who, verse 22, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. For to this you were called, to suffer at the hands of the unjust as Christ did, and to bear that suffering patiently as Christ did, to endure that grief as Christ did. The character of our suffering, including what we suffer and how we suffer, in that we are to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you flip the page, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 16. It's in this way, referring to conscience again now, that you maintain a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. They'll be ashamed at his appearing. They'll be ashamed at the judgment. It's an example. Uh, Many of you who've been here for a while will remember over the years, uh, this is a, a highly persecuted church. <laughs> We've faced a great deal of persecution in our years here. And years ago, uh, facing uh, particularly um, severe hostility or severe persecution, um, I was really grateful myself for the example of a sister church who had gone through a similar difficulty years earlier where uh, I saw that church bear that suffering, endure that suffering in um, a very Christ-honoring, Christ-like way. And it was exceedingly encouraging to me personally. I know it was to many here. And we've seen over the years how God has dispensed with their enemies, (laughs) how God has uh, preserved them through all of that. And how that church, in the way that she handled her suffering, simply committed themselves, committed their cause to him who judges righteously. And that's what we're to do. In our suffering, in our difficulty, in our persecution, brothers and sisters, we are to commit ourselves to him who judges righteously. Uh, We have a righteous judge. Uh, We have one who cares for us. And the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of trials and to reserve the wicked under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows. Lord knows how to dispense with our enemies, and he has in many cases. And we've seen that come to fruition. We are to trust him in our suffering, and we're to suffer. We will suffer the hostility of this world, just as he did. Not in all those ways that he did, and not to the extent that he did, um, as an atonement for our sin. But we will suffer the hostility of this world, and we are to suffer that hostility in the manner, or according to the character, that he himself suffered it.
The certainty of our suffering, the character of our suffering. Third, there is a purpose to our suffering. A purpose to our suffering. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that, the purpose statement, so that we may also be glorified together. There are many temporal reasons for why we might face suffering in our Christian lives. Many. And many of those um, reasons, obviously, according to the will of God. Let's just mention a few as examples. First, it may be that you face suffering because God determines to glorify his own strength in your weakness. God is determined to glorify his own strength in your weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, knowing that God's strength is seen through his own weakness, Paul said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. In other words, I take pleasure, Paul says, in suffering for Christ's sake, because when I am weak, then I am strong. God's own strength magnified. God's own power glorified through Paul's weakness. And so Paul endured suffering. Secondly, sometimes we suffer for the good of others. We suffer for the good of others. For their example, that they themselves may learn to endure suffering. You're going through something, the Lord teaches you, comforts you, exhorts you, instructs you, matures you through it. And as you come through that, by God's grace, the Lord having delivered you out of it, the Lord then uses you... (laughs) to comfort those with the very same comfort with which you yourself have been comforted. Consoling them with the very same consolation in Christ that you yourself have been consoled with. Right? The Lord uses you, or we suffer for the good of others, that they may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which they themselves are comforted by God. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 6, Paul says this, speaking of his own suffering. He says to the Corinthians, now if we are afflicted, It is for your consolation and your salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. In other words, we're suffering for you because your salvation is effective for enduring these same sufferings. So when you face them them yourselves, you know where to go for help, right? If we are comforted, it's for your consolation, your salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know We know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also if you're in Jesus Christ, you will partake of the consolation. The consolation is coming. Hang in there. Sometimes we suffer for the good of others. Third, sometimes we suffer that we may glorify God in the eyes of the wicked. That those who revile your good conduct in the Lord Jesus Christ may be ashamed. It will be held against them in the day of his visitation. Job suffered in this way, didn't he? Job suffered in vindication of God's righteous cause. Job suffered vindication of God's righteous cause against the accusations of Satan. And Job didn't ultimately understand or know why he was suffering. And so when we suffer, you can't turn in frustration or anger toward God and You're not going to always know why you're suffering or the purpose that that suffering um, serves, the aim for which that suffering is given. 
You're not always going to know. We are to glorify God in it and bear, endure grief for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should always bear our suffering well, even when we don't understand it. Fourth, we suffer for the testing and for the affirming of our faith. Peter, once again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, we rejoice in our promised inheritance, an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. And Peter says, in that salvation, in that promised inheritance, we greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, and you've been grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. The character of our suffering bears evidence of the genuineness of our faith. It bolsters our assurance in this life and it glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ at his return. Our suffering well glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ at his return. Five, we suffer for the sake of our own maturity. We suffer for the sake of our own growth in our Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter one, verse two, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The trials themselves are not going to be just... um, unmitigated, blissful, joyful occurrences, right? We don't, we're not rejoicing in the trial for the sake of the trial itself, but we count it, we reckon it joy when we consider all that the Lord accomplishes through it. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this in faith, that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, patience, right? Let patience have its perfect work, persevere, bear up under suffering, that that perseverance, that endurance will have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The Lord intends to grow you and mature you through patient perseverance and endurance through suffering. But Paul, Paul gives us another person purpose for our suffering in Romans eight seventeen. We suffer with him so that we may also be glorified together with him. There's a connection between the two, a relationship between the two. We suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. We suffer with him for the purpose that we would also be glorified together with him. The path by which our Lord Jesus Christ was exalted is the path of suffering. And therefore, The path by which those in union with Christ will be exalted is the path of suffering. It's in this way that we will be glorified together with him. Now, Paul's not saying that we we earn that glory on the merits of our suffering, that we earn that inheritance through our suffering. Verse 18, the sufferings of this present time, not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. There's not a one-for-one trade there. I give suffering and I get glory. No, we don't earn glory through our suffering. One can't be compared to the other. (laughs) But the question is this, why is it that I suffer with Christ in order to share with Christ in his glory? Why is it that I suffer with Christ in order to share with him in his glory? 
Hasn't he taken all of my sin upon himself? Isn't his sacrifice for me more than sufficient to atone for all of my sins, to reconcile me to God, to ensure passage, if you will, through the gates of paradise to be with him forever? Isn't his sacrifice sufficient? Well, I think the answer to the question is really found in the words of Paul from Philippians chapter 3. And I want you to listen to this and think about this with me. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Turn there with me. We've got time. Turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3. And think about what Paul is saying here. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul has recounted his resume, so to speak all of the so-called accomplishments of his former life. All those things that we spend time as unconverted people bragging about, right? (laughs) You know, you you go to a funeral nowadays, and um, it really is sad. It's, It's tragic, right? It's tragic. You're sitting there at a funeral at the death of someone, and they're recounting what a great patriot he was, right? You know, he served his country, and he loved the military, and he, is it good to love your country? Yes. Is it good to serve in the military? Yeah, I think so. That's, that's a noble service, and we're grateful for people who serve in that way. But listen, when that is the, the focus of your life, where on your casket, they're etching the logo of the college football team that you followed on Saturdays, and that what goes, that's what goes on your casket? Or there's a plaque for whatever branch of service that you served in on your casket? There's a problem, do you see? We are citizens of another country. <laughs> we are citizens of another kingdom. And our citizenship is in heaven with him. There should be no difficulty whatsoever discerning what is and was the most important thing in your life up to that point, right? The Lord Jesus Christ, it should be clear, manifest. And Paul says this, after having recounted all that resume in the opening verses of chapter three, Paul says this in verse seven, those things that he imagined to be gain to him, he said, these I have counted loss for Christ. Listen, if that one could come back from the dead for just a moment, for just a moment, if he could come back from the dead, do you think that he would speak for one moment about his military service? Do you think that he would speak for one moment about the college football team that he followed on Saturday? One minute about it. No, not one minute. He would blurt out uncontrollably the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, turn to Christ and be saved, all you ends of the earth, before it's too late. That's what he would preach, right? That's what he would say. Paul says, all those things I counted loss for Jesus Christ, yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but having that righteousness, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. I want that, Paul says, verse 10, for the purpose that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, our question was this. Why is it that I suffer with Christ in order to share with Christ in his glory? Why is it that I must suffer? Well, through our own experience of suffering, we fellowship with him in his sufferings. We fellowship with him. We have fellowship with him in our suffering. In our own suffering, we are able to comprehend in some small way or in some small part, just a taste of what Jesus Christ did to redeem us, what he did for us. In our own suffering, we come to some small apprehension of what it is that he did to secure our salvation, and it's with that understanding that we worship him. And it's with that understanding that we love him. And it's with that understanding that we pour out gratitude to him. It's with that understanding, as minuscule as it may be, as frail and as weak as it may be, it's with that understanding that we enjoy fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ in eternity. It is the fellowship that we have with him in his suffering. We see an indication of that in the experience of Thomas in uh, John chapter 20 when he, when he uh, encounters the risen Lord. Think with me for a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ appears to the disciples in a room. The door is closed. They're fearful. Right? The door is closed. And Thomas has not been with the disciples to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Thomas is saying, listen, unless I see the scar in his hand and the gash in his side, I'm not going to believe. I w-. Thomas says, I will not believe. Right? And so they're in the room, and the Lord Jesus Christ appears in the room. And the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. He's been raised from the dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ still, in his glorified state, bears the marks of his substitution on our behalf. Right? He has the scars in his hands and the scar in his side. Now, why, why is that? He's, glorified. He's got a glorified body. Why is that? Why is it that the Lord Jesus Christ still bears the testimony, if you will, of his substitution for us? Thomas, looking upon him, he says to Thomas, in love and in mercy, Thomas, reach your hand here. Reach your hand here. Put your fingers in the marks of my hands. Thomas, reach your hand here. Put it in my side. You see? Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. He has the right response. But that's not the only way in which Thomas responds. Thomas responds to the Lord that day, my Lord and my God. Well, what was Thomas like after after that? Church tradition suggests that Thomas took the gospel to India. And he preached the gospel from Jerusalem to India. And he preached Christ and him crucified in India until the time that Thomas was killed for his faith. Thomas was run through with spears in India. Thomas would have echoed the words of Paul, counting not even his life as dear to himself. 
so that Thomas may know him, so that Thomas would know the power of his resurrection, and so that Thomas would know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, knowing, knowing that we who suffer together with him shall be glorified together with him. And now Thomas enjoying communion with our Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering in eternity. I think that's what that means. We share together with him in his suffering that we might be glorified together with him. And our glorification with him, our sharing with him in our eternal inheritance is a sharing with him, a fellowship with him, a communion with him in our acknowledgement of his suffering on our behalf and that acknowledgement in part coming through our own suffering for which we will be eternally grateful, for which we will worship him in all eternity, uh, for which we will magnify the name of our elder brother forever. The saints who here in patience their cross and sufferings bore shall live and reign forever when sorrow is no more. Around the throne of glory, the Lamb they shall behold and in triumph cast before him their diadems of gold. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we magnify your great name. We are grateful for your suffering on our behalf. We worship you and we praise you when we consider uh, acknowledging the limits of our own understanding and acknowledging the, the feebleness of our own understanding. When we consider the price that was paid for our redemption, we pour out gratitude to you. We love you. We thank you. Your love for us constrains us, compels us. And we judge thus. And if you died for all, then all died. And those who died, died. That we should no longer live for ourselves, but to live for you who died for us and rose again. So we, Lord, turn with gratitude in our hearts, with affection for you, and we give our lives to you, abandon ourselves for you, to live godly in this present age, knowing, Lord, that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Lord, help us by the strength of your spirit to lean into that, to lean into that knowing that we fellowship with you through our own suffering. We fellowship with you in your suffering and that we can magnify the name, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ through our own suffering. We can magnify and exalt and extol the grace of our God uh, through patiently enduring under suffering in the way that you did following your example and that our great salvation is worth it. <laughs> uh, you are worth it. And we praise you and worship you in that way. And so help us, Lord, by your spirit to bear up well under, under suffering. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in our trials and our difficulties, knowing um, what you produce in and through them, and knowing that you, Lord, have intended and determined to do us good through them and have promised to work all things together for our good. So help us, Lord, to have a proper biblical perspective, not to be run over by our circumstances or beaten about the head and shoulders or um, cast into despair over our circumstances, but help us have a biblical perspective of our circumstances 
that we may glorify you. That the wicked that persecute us may be ashamed at your coming. That the wicked may be judged at your return and that your saints may shine in you. And thank you, Lord, for this promise. Thank you for the strength that your spirit supplies. And thank you, Lord, for your word that encourages us uh, to learn, to understand, and to apply these things. May it be so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.